0: Welcome to The RODcast with Rod Turner, the show all about real estate. We discuss everything that affects asset-backed businesses, investments, and go deep into the details with some of the best in the business. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of The RODcast. I'm very excited to have Conal Grogan, the portfolio manager at Resonance with me today. Resonance is an impact-led investment company managing hundreds of millions of assets across 11 funds, the largest being their Homelessness Property Fund, which has reached 258 million of assets under management and houses over 2,500 people on their way out of homelessness. Connell balances the day-to-day needs of the Real Lettings Property Fund in its acquisition, refurbishment and asset management requirements with a healthy strategic eye on its long-term portfolio needs. Connell, welcome, and I hope
1: I've got all that right. Thank you, Rod. Thanks for the invitation. It's weird when you hear yourself being described, but I think that is what I do, but I wear a few different hats. Do you want to
0: tell us a bit about your background and how you came to be at Residence?
1: Sure. I'll give you the long story, because I find it uh, gives a bigger picture. But So 20 years in property, starting in you know classic residential lettings and sales and then moving into commercials, client-side, office acquisitions, lease regearing, And then really uh, got very interested in the investment side, so land development and the like. And then finally, before I moved to residence, it was on the business rates, which is a bit of a geeky side of surveying. But what really happened was, is while I was doing the investment agency, was I was feeling quite disillusioned with the market. And And the industry, and was doing some pro bono work for a homelessness charity, and I managed to get them a free office space in Holborn for, and they end up staying there for a couple of years actually, on the business rates exemption. And I saw this—I was on the tube on the Northern Line one evening, and I saw an article in the newspaper about this new homelessness property fund. Wow, homelessness and property fund, and this was about ten years ago. And well, that could be—it feels like something I could that really sort of. Pert my interest that I could get involved in. I literally Googled the name, and I'd love to meet you for a coffee. Three years later, the role came up, and I've been here for the last seven years. So that's sort of how I got into Resonance. And at the time, there wasn't really anyone, any other organisations or companies that appeared to be doing anything like that. So it was quite pioneering at the time.
0: Absolutely. And do you want to give us a bit of background as to, I know I gave a sentence on it in the intro, but what is it exactly that Resonance does that
1: you're involved in well we've been going around 20 years now we started off as a consultancy effectively for social enterprises to help act as a bridge between them and, and capital and that evolved really into helping them to divide, define their impact narrative and then around 10 years ago Simon Chisholm joined from Rothschild bank and he set up the, property fund side of the business. And that's when we launched the fund that we're most famous for, which is the homelessness fund with St. Mungo's where they had, again, at the time, I think was the first social lettings agency. They're a lot more common nowadays. It was a very simple model. They were getting frustrated leasing to private landlords, very sporadic. And we felt there was an opportunity to create an impact-led fund that could raise capital on their behalf, acquire the properties, refurbish them to an agreed standard, and then they would have quality properties at volume with that certainty that they could then house their tenants. So that, that's in terms of resonance on the fund side of it, we see ourselves as demand-led. And we co-create these funds with the charities, with the social enterprises, rather than go design something and then say, right, you take these properties, we we look at where there's a gap in the market, where there's a market failure, be that homelessness, be it domestic abuse, be it learning disabilities. And we create the fund around that identified failure, and we do it very, very much Driven by the needs of the charity and the social enterprise.
0: And I guess that must make raising the capital a bit easier, being more demand led rather than, like you say, coming up with a, an idea and then going out to find it. Is, is that the case?
1: We have a whole range of investors and they will range in their appetite for risk and their ideas about impact and the reasons for getting involved. Broadly speaking, we're, we're, we're seeing quite proudly seen, the impact reports that we do are very extensive and we we show a sort of warts and all. Mm-hmm. We don't just say oh look at this we're doing homelessness and it's great. We say no, well this is the story of the people that have joined these properties. This is how they've transitioned from where they were before and this is where they are now. And but actually it's not perfect. There's problems with universal credit, there's problems with benefit cap, there's problems with the access to other private rented accommodation that's unaffordable, so where they're going to move to, all of these things we are open about so when we present these new funds to our existing and new investors they can see that there's the intentionality yeah what we do rather than we're saying to people look here's a good investor it's a good investment it's it's guaranteed rent and it gives you a return and you don't have to worry about the tenants it's not what we're saying we're saying this is the impact of what the this investment does
0: this is the difference it's going to make to someone's life or a community, etc.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: And what would be the difference between something like that homelessness fund and what it does compared to a housing association, maybe, or any other of the property funds? How how would you differentiate yourselves from from a housing association?
1: It's a difficult one. This, and what I would say is there is a range of. It's not obviously not a simple answer, but there's a range of types of housing associations, as there is a range of types of impact funds in, in invert brackets. Yeah, And I think clearly housing associations have been around a lot longer than impact investment companies or impact led investors. And so to give the range, I mean, from a, you've got the housing associations now, as you will be aware that a f- fully profit driven essentially development companies Yeah. on one side and on the other side you've got the grassroots or even larger housing associations that will be doing social, social lettings, social rent and indeed a lot of those housing associations, a few of them have been a part of this new fund that we just launched called the Resonance Everyone In Fund which is a response to the pandemic and those that have been taken off the streets. So there are housing associations involved in that level And they do have social lettings agencies as well. But often there is an offshoot of the main core business, which is obviously predominantly now affordable shared ownership. Whereas on the impact fund side, again, you will have some of these big funds and I won't mention any names and they will say, we do impact. And they won't measure it. They won't measure what they do. And they may buy a portfolio of properties, evict anyone that's living in there without regard for their situation, put in a new lease that's much higher and then put it on sale that onto the market mm. at premium because of the lease impact on the valuation. So I think there's a broad range.
0: On that point, how would you measure the impact? Because obviously with most funds, you can measure things like the returns to a point, the volatility, the risk. How do you go about even starting to measure the impact and... and that you can then relay that to potential investors? So we
1: look at three core metrics on our homelessness fund, for example, resilience to homelessness, progression towards work, and saving towards move on. Okay. We look within those three measures, there's a whole load of other questions that we can ask that bring out interesting answers as to how they're getting on. So we would, when we're looking at measurement, we're looking at the journey, as I said earlier on. So we're looking at, okay, are they coming from temporary accommodation? Are they coming from bed and breakfast? What's their situation? Do they have a child? Children are under two. Does that mean they're going to struggle to get work? How confident do they feel in where they're living? Have they got support networks with the local community? Have they been able to get work in terms of meaningful work? Or is this low level employment that's not going to be able to progress them long term? And then we put that all of that qualitative, quantitative data into our report and and try and see what comes out the other end. And the idea is that through that learning and through that interrogation that we build up this design process that will enable us to look at our existing funds and see what's working, what's not working, and then enable us to build better future funds.
0: And how would you say the appetite of for social impact investments has changed over the past decade or so because you're in the news now about esg and into investments and various other things how do you feel like from the front line i suppose how do you think that's coming through in terms of investors approaching you or which investors are keen to get on board
1: it's a good one i mean there's been a big movement especially over the last i'd say two years you know pre-pandemic you could see that there was a big change in the, if you're on LinkedIn or you're on, you watch a, you similar podcasts like these and increasing topics, talking about affordable housing, social lettings, all of this sort of stuff. When I started doing this 10 years ago, seven to 10 years ago, it was one of those awkward conversations at a dinner party where someone would say, oh, what is it you do? Well, I mean, this thing called impact investment and people would be very interested but not quite know what you were talking about <laughs> and I think now people are probably still a little bit like that <laughs> but they're a bit more interested in the detail now and, and they're keen to learn a bit more about it in terms of the investors I think it's clear that there's a big wall of capital now that is looking in this space and people organizations like big society capital who are a big investor in ours will tell you that that's grown exponentially by billions every year. And certainly, I can see that that continuing to be the case. There are a number of REITs that have launched over the last three to four years. I think that will probably continue. they will be doing more additional fundraising. At Residence, we've launched four new property funds in the last two years, which has been pretty busy, busy going. But yeah, I think it's going to continue. And I think the big thing is that the institutional investors now, so your pension funds and the like get involved and the ticket investment there is they don't want to normally get involved for anything less than sort of 20 million plus, and they don't want to usually be more than sort of 10% 10 of the fund. So you've got to very quickly get get that interest. but.
0: And so, I mean, you've mentioned a few kind of examples there, but what would be the typical investor profile for some of the funds that, that Resonance has?
1: So our traditional investors were trusts and foundations. That really scaled up in the, back in 2013 when we had a number of the councils begin to invest in us, the local councils. Okay. So in our homelessness funds, we have about half a dozen councils so about three, three in London, plus the GLA, Greater London Authority, and more recently the likes of MHCLG through the uh, as part of the Everyone In, and then as I said in the last year, we've had a pension fund, our first pension fund investment, and we see that as the real way for us to scale this up and to do to deliver more impact in, in a number of our areas where we're we're working.
0: That's really interesting um, about the councils. Wouldn't have expected that to be honest.
1: Yeah, I mean, on the one side you've got the trusts and foundations who are very impact-driven, very interested in the impact narrative, whereas the councils probably sit somewhere in the middle, where they're looking at the obviously the savings and the pressure they have for temporary accommodation, and what this and the pressures on, of course, on delivery of that, sourcing of properties, the refurbishment thereof, and everything else that goes with it. And and we've provided a a small part of that outlet over the last seven years. And and we see that as a way ongoing as well for our other funds. Pension funds, of course, are are driven by ESG, as you mentioned, and the increasing way that those that are part of their scheme want to see them being more socially and environmentally minded. And I think also, being honest, that on the scale of risk, they are lower risk. If some of them have put their money in retail over the last... 10 years, they might see that this is slightly lower return, but but more that matching the benefits of their beneficiaries.
0: Absolutely, and provides that stable income coming in that I guess most pension funds are really looking for, aren't they? What does the various property-related funds look for in terms of the actual assets to invest in? And why might these be different to what a typical residential landlord or investor is looking for in terms of their residential assets that they're looking to purchase
1: i would say i guess i would start by saying that a good impact investor would do what a good investor would do and i think that would for us the way we work things is as i say we co-design and we demand led so part of that is we agree what good looks like in terms of a specification for refurbishment and for location
0: so for example, where you mentioned before, was it St Mungo's, the charity, would you then discuss with them what it is the end product is that they're after? That, I don't know if you're doing it for a specific type of tenant, they might have specific kind of things in the living room or kitchen, or if it's wheelchair access points or things yeah. like that. And
1: exactly. I mean, it's got to be fit for the tenant that's moving in there. And what we're really keen on is things like fuel poverty. So we don't want where possible we bring it up to the highest standard so they can they're able to pay their bills and to, as a save money and, and ideally move on to other private rented accommodation. That's a sort of core impact of the fund. But they live in comfortably and they feel positive about where they live and it's not hasn't got a stigmatism with it. So that operationally, that looks like we've got three to eight properties going through with our solicitors every week for the last seven years and that sort of volume you need to get that uniformity so we make sure with our leasing partner they know exactly the boilers that are going to be in their kitchens the flooring the color of the paint and the walls so you know we've designed that to be to be like that but we also make sure when we've got our people on the ground viewing the properties that if they notice any antisocial behavior or if for example it's on the second floor in a block There's no lift, and we know that our typical tenants got children. We will we'll build it around that. But equally on the investment side, we're looking at the what's our net initial yields? Is it privately toned or ex-local authority? We can make some assumptions on capital growth. And that gives us a score from the charity side and from the investment side. That then gets submitted to our investment committee for approval on a weekly cycle. So we just put that volume through, and that's worked very well for us. As I say, the big difference, what I've seen, and I, and of course, I've been, a, we've been approached quite a lot being in this space is that there can be properties that are very secondary tertiary locations that have been scrubbed up marginally, and then with a lease added to it, and then so come, you know, we want to do impact, let, let me, let's add another 10, 20% what it's worth because of the lease in place, even though the underlying asset is not quality asset. So ultimately, we're going to make those decisions not not to have that in the fund.
0: Yeah, I mean, we, I see an awful lot of that at the moment. Um, I think certain investors do see that as almost a strategy for buying these low capital value products and thinking that they can rejig a lease and that can increase it further than what the underlying value is. And, and I think, yeah, they're playing a dangerous game there, I think. You mentioned things like knowing what boilers you have in, and uniformity and, and paint and all that sort of thing. Because you're managing so many individual units, you're not like a lot of other funds that will go for purely a build-to-rent models so or everything's in the same place. So I think some private residential landlords that are scaling up at the moment and might have kind of 100 different houses or something in their portfolio would be really interested in this conversation just about the asset management of it and what are the challenges that you find with managing so many Different individual units.
1: It was strange for me coming from an investment, property investment background and development as well to have the approach whereby we would be buying pepper potted units spread around London and the UK. I was, oh, come on, let's buy some portfolios, let's buy some blocks, let's do this. Why are we doing that? Said, no, no, no. It's because ultimately you don't want to concentrate too many people and ghettoize big groups yeah. of people in one location. So that's the impact reason. There are other benefits, which is being able to break up if needed and dispose of assets quite easily on the general market. We call them ordinary homes, and ordinary streets, and that's that's what they are. And that has a good resale benefit. But there's been a big learning curve um, since I've been doing this. And what I would say is the big part is data. Make sure you get all of the right legal information about all of your properties all of your assets from day one environmental side of things is going to be very a big topic in the next few years and i don't think a lot of people have fully appreciated that yet what we've only just dealt with minimum energy efficiency standards to get everything to E and c is going to be around the corner in 2030 before we realize so i think the decarbonisation of portfolios and the liquidation that will entail is going to be happening very, very soon. Yeah. And that's going to be important if those that are looking to get involved in this space and perhaps look for an impact investor to come and take those properties on from them.
0: Even this morning I read that the Greens home grant is potentially now going to be scrapped because they feel it hasn't worked properly. And how can they get everything up to a C within that time frame? They haven't got enough installers to help with things so it is i do think that's a huge huge issue like you say people maybe not taking it seriously as seriously as perhaps they should be
1: for sure it's, it's definitely coming and it's going to come quicker than we, th- we realize so that's one thing the other thing is uh, leasing partners so who your partner is that we've chosen carefully who we underwrite some mongos there are large if you're looking at them as a covenant for a retail, there'd be a, I was going to say a Boots, but I'm not sure if Boots are a good covenant, retail covenant anymore or not. But you get the idea of what I'm yeah, saying. Yeah. The, um, the blue chip. The blue chip, the blue chip covenant. And so they've been doing it for a long time. They've got a strong balance sheet and they're used to managing these sorts of assets. So we don't, as fund managers, we don't get involved in the ongoing asset management of these properties, at least the repairs, the asset management we do. So that's important, get the right partner. But also budget, think about how long you're going to be holding these periods for these purposes, if they're going to be leased. So you may be taking off the income element of it, but if it's a lease, think about your section 20 costs, your ground rent and your service charge. Think about when you've got to do that lease extension. I know they're talking about making that a bit easier, but those premiums can hit you at any point below the 80. And yeah, just think about it in the round over the long term.
0: And how long do you normally look to hold the properties for? Is there any form of kind of exit plan? At what point would you decide, actually, we're better off selling this asset? Is there anything kind of specific that you look for in, in that respect?
1: So our fund lengths range from initially we launched a seven-year funds. At the time, we felt that was a, a reasonable length to in order to be long enough in order to get the to be worthwhile doing but not too long as to put people off that this they would have their capital tied up in this quirky impact led space that people haven't really got totally comfortable with yet. We've now extended that sort of 10, 15 and 20 year uh, leases. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the idea is for all existing investors to have exits at those towards the end of those lease end lives. Um, ultimately we want to hold, we would like to hold all of these assets for the impact that in perpetuity um, um, so that's the plan but obviously we want we need to find an exit route and we see that as institutions who would are happy to have this sitting in their portfolio over the 20 year plus period
0: yeah I can see why that's um, why that's kind of of interest to, to, to them as well and it also goes back to you kind of the the spreading the um the assets around and not having it all in one block makes that exit a lot more appealing as well and, and and i guess going back to the fact that it's a fund and there are returns involved for investors obviously obviously boosts that side um in, yeah. in terms of that kind of how how much do you balance the whole social impact element versus returns for investors and how much emphasis goes on each of those and is there is does the impact, um, does the emphasis on social impact come at a cost to total returns, or are they kind of are they correlated
1: Yeah, I mean this is a question of course that people always um, are concerned about as an investor getting it if they've not been into this space before because it feels like a bit of a dipping your toe in the ocean of, um, of unknowns yeah uh, and I think. Broadly, what we what we what we say is this is if you look at local housing allowance, for example, since it launched in 2008, if you look at that increase in rent annually, broadly is linked to CPI. So from an institutional perspective, okay, look, you've got an income here, circa between, depending on the fund, you might have a net income to the investor between two and five percent at any given time, paid quarterly. So that then will go up. CPI into the future, depending on how long they're holding it. And then ultimately, aside from that, these are residential properties, and you can make your own assumption as to what you think the market's going to do. As I said, ordinary properties on ordinary streets, these are terraced houses, flats in blocks in good areas. So that's just down to your assumption on what the market is going to do over the period. And again, if you look back, historically at land registry, as we do over the last 30 years you can say that over a five-year holding period prices go up on average of five percent per annum five to seven year holding period of course there's some aberrations in that period but broadly speaking and i'm not saying anything that people that are listening to this show probably don't know that property prices will go up over a long period of time but i think that's worthwhile if you just look at the income and the capital and you break it down like that in terms of the leases that is a guaranteed rent in all of the, in all the funds that we manage. So our partners take on the repairs, the voids, the bad debt and all of that. So that really is the risk adjusted bit whereby if you were actively asset managing it yourself, could you get a slightly higher return? Maybe. But that's risk adjusted it by taking into account those factors and the longer lease.
0: Absolutely. And um, you mentioned debt there does the fund take on debt to buy the assets or is it purely done with the equity of the funds? And if so, why?
1: We've used just 100% equity, no doubt. That's enabled us to move pretty quickly on all of our purchases. However, I think we have seen that has been able to, it's obviously only worthwhile doing if if the returns are higher than the spread. And I think there are one or two new funds that we've launched, I think where we'd be able to do that. And that would be, I think where you're looking at, in this space, exempt accommodation, for example, where the returns can be slightly higher versus local housing allowance.
0: What opportunities do you feel that there are for developers in terms of some of these social impact funds, such as Resonance? Because I know you've talked about the assets that you're buying. Is there an opportunity for developers to work with funds like yourself? And if so, what would that look like?
1: Yeah, I think the short answer is yes. And we are looking for partners to help us deliver this capital as quickly as possible in the right way. And I think there are some developers that we, you know, we have been approached and we are working with a few people to help us with our requirements. Again, we're slightly different to some of the other funds out there and that we're not in the, in the business of just acquiring portfolios and saying to our leasing partner, here you go. You said you were going to take a lease, take a lease even if it's not in the location or it's underwritten by the demand that they may have from the council or otherwise. So in that sense, if someone is willing to look outside of the box a little bit, put in a bit more effort and maybe either deliver a bespoke scheme from the ground up or via a conversion with us bringing in our leasing partner and then driven by that demand, then I think there's there's real opportunity there, not just with us, but I imagine with others. But again, as I said earlier, I think we've been approached a lot of occasions where with a secondary tertiary tertiary property, with a lease that perhaps that we wouldn't feel comfortable about taking on, with assumed valuation because of that lease, over and above vacant possession value, which for us means that we're not driving that value for our investors. And as a valuer and a chartered I would look at these things with, with an eye on what point do we, rec- if we had to sell this asset tomorrow without the lease, what would it be worth? That's the way that they, these things need to be interrogated, really.
0: I think I look at it in terms of what's the barrier to entry. Is it a, I don't know, standard house that the next door neighbour could purchase and set up that lease? If there's limited barrier to entry, then really I can't see any reason why that capital value should go up because of the lease there i think that seems to be
1: yeah good point what's yeah yeah for sure
0: how do you then see what's going on in the prs moving forward with institutions starting to get involved in residential property and lettings and and these institutions seem to be taking a much bigger piece of the pie Now and do you think the day of the part-time landlord, where i know a couple moves in together, they might both have a a property each, and they decide to let one out? I mean, do you think the day of that part-time landlords over? What do you think is going to happen with the PRS moving forward, with all the institutions getting involved?
1: I mean, I think the pie is big enough for everybody. Mm -hmm. I think if people, for some people, a few the accidental landlord is all that they want and all that they need, but if those that are want to be do more than that there is potential for that and institutions will only ever be able to deal with a certain type of demand in a certain market i don't see them replacing your typical buy to let landlord who can build up a nice portfolio i do what i do think and i do see as a good thing is that the professionalization of the industry both in terms of sort of health and safety how tenants are dealt with I think that's welcome for everybody mm. and I think that's taken a long time to come. But I think for those that can deliver a good product and are able to source the right investments, I think there's always, there's room for everybody. There's all sorts of routes to market.
0: Absolutely. And you mentioned their sourcing investments. Do you source investments through the standard ways that, I don't know, a lot of the private landlords might do? So, Are you buying on-market properties? Are you looking at auctions are, are you going through probate sales or is there anything specific that might be different to your traditional
1: landlord probably not i guess our advantage is this money that we this when we don't have this is not an emotional purchase this is money sitting in the bank that is for this purpose we're determined to get it out the door as quickly as possible in the right way and as a result of that agents who were traditionally you would just be another punter yeah. um, can say, okay, you can make my life a lot easier. So they will over time come to us with off market properties naturally. And that will enable us to do things that way. Equally, we may have bought one or two built flats in a building and then we'll have other people in the building say, Oh, I can see that you bought one or two of those flats. Are you interested in buying my flat? Yeah. Um, and then sort of things evolve around like that. We have tried auctions in the past. And what we found honestly is that they go for a lot more money than mm-hmm. what we think that they're worth that would give us the value that we need and the yields that we need for our portfolios so i keep on trying to see the value in these auctions and I, and i must be missing something but i just find people just end up paying crazy money
0: yeah i think 10 years ago you'd go into an auction room and it would be mostly investors and professional landlords purchasing and now it's a lot more open to the whole of market really with Lot more finance options available on on some of the purchases and things like that. So it does. I I think people like the certainty of being able to purchase because what is it? One in three residential purchases fall through, and I think that can obviously be a bonus. But yeah, I I totally agree with you in terms of kind of finding a deal. It's not what it was.
1: Yeah, I can imagine the good the good old days. Um, (laughs) Again, we work with some sourcing agents who bring us the odd thing every now and then, but not enough to materially swing sure that far
0: what advice would you give then to landlords listening who are in the prs about managing just larger amounts of individual units is there anything specific that you would say that has helped you
1: as i said before just it's a classic thing and i listen to other podcasts as i'm sure you do and you speak to other investors it's all about having the right team Mm -hmm. around you to get the best advice I'm a chartered surveyor, but if I'm not 110% sure on that aspect in that property, I will find someone yeah. who is an expert. And that's been the same. And I've applied that approach to everything that I've done, be it making sure that we've, I've got getting the best person for doing the lease extensions or the f- best valuers. You know, We've kissed a lot of frogs in terms of solicitors. Spend time and don't be afraid to say if something's not working to mm-hmm. change that relationship. And to get the right team around you, because getting that data and getting familiar with that data, and you know, I'm I'm, firm, I'm trying, if you like, to build in this picture of a DNA of a property to my team to say, I understand everything about where the parking is, where what responsibility is on the fence and the back. And it sounds very geeky and a bit boring, but it's just really got to know your asset inside out to be able to work out whether you want to keep it or whatever.
0: And that must be quite difficult because like you said you're not just based it's not just London that you have properties it's all over the UK so and properties are different I know you might go to Stoke and there's a red ash problem and things like that versus somewhere else that where you may not have come across that so it must be quite difficult to actually gain that knowledge of all these specific areas and the types of properties and, and any issues that might come up with that is that just about having local knowledge and local people on the team
1: Definitely is. Definitely is. And I think, well, I've had to pull Google, Google Maps out a few times recently, working out the difference between Bradford and Leeds and, <laughs> and other spots like that, for my ignorance. But yeah, I think you've got to recruit local people. And that's what we try and do wherever we go. We have the people on the ground viewing the properties, managing the contractors. We have local contractors, not not large ones. I'm a big I'm a big firm believer in not working with large organisations. Yeah. So I try to go with someone that's big enough that he's got his own team of, of, around them, but not too big that you're going to get passed off to two or three lines down the road, that that money, that you, that relationship's worth something to the business owner. And that translates into them them dealing with issues as and when they arise and giving you the right service. And that, I feel that has been a good story, really, sort of helping to a lot of these SMEs growing up with us, around us.
0: Absolutely fantastic, Connell. Is there anything else you wanted to kind of let the listeners know? Is there a preferred method that if people are interested in getting involved in some of these funds, where should they find information out about it? Is it just on the website?
1: Yeah, I mean, if there are landlords that are interested to find to maybe they're looking to dispose their properties or there's some, people, investors that want to know more, then yeah, feel free to drop me an email or directly UK. Nice short email. <laughs> well, well, I'll uh, make sure there's a link in the show notes. Yeah, happy to explore it with people if they've got an interest.
0: Brilliant. That's been so interesting. And I'm definitely, definitely keen to see what happens in the future for some of these social impact funds. And I think just what you're doing with the Homelessness Fund and All these other ventures are brilliant. So, yeah, great stuff. And it's been really interesting to hear about it.
1: Thanks, Rob. Appreciate it. Thanks for inviting us. No problem.
0: That's all for this episode. But please remember to subscribe or follow on your podcast platform. And if you've enjoyed it, please leave a rating or a review. Subscribing and reviewing really does help to increase our rankings, which in turn helps us to keep getting fantastic guests on the show. And more importantly, it also means that you won't miss an episode. Huge thanks for listening.